The experience of watching a truly world historic moment unfold through the windows of your apartment or your house in your pajamas is not exactly what we were led to expect. History books made it seem so much more dramatic. And even despite the frustrations with our contemporary political impasses, the elite obstructionism, the spectacular populism that doesn't really seem to go anywhere, we truly have lived through, and in fact are living through, a world historic moment. So many extraordinary measures taken by states previously thought impossible have taken place over the past 18 months. Well over $14 trillion and counting in fiscal measures alone around the globe. And yet all of this seems to confirm the conservative dictum announced in a mid-20th century novel, which was set in the 19th century. Everything must change for everything to remain the same. Welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. It's Thursday, the 26th of August. My name is Alex Hokili, and as always, I'm with Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Yo, what's up? So today we're going to be discussing Adam Tooze's new book, Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. It's a book which presents a thrilling narrative on 2020 and early 2021, Uh, It's a very present history. It's about the huge crisis responses and the inadequacies of the legacies of 30 years of neoliberalism. It's a book about biological and, by extension, natural threats and biopolitical responses, about oceans of cheap money and the massively expanded role of central banks. It's about national inequalities and global inequalities, about China's Sputnik moment and Western adhocracy. So right now, Phil and myself will be chatting to Adam Tooze, who is professor of history at Columbia University and director of the European Institute. He's the author of The Deluge about World War I, Crashed, A History of the 2008 Crisis, and uh, his new book, which is out today or will be out today when you hear this. Uh, So here is Phil and myself talking to Adam about Shutdown. I'm most of the way through your book. I'm really quite, I've enjoyed it. Uh, Oh, excellent. I, I completely agree with you on Italy. Have you ever looked at um, the pictures of, um, maybe there's even video of, of Berlusconi's, you know, original housing project development outside Milan? Oh yeah, like Milano Due, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that is a, that is a full, just full J.G. Ballard. Right <laughs> it is, absolutely. It's, a, it's amazing with the, uh, with the kind of uh, Minitel style, Yeah. you know. Kind of like uh, closed circuit television Terminals, yeah, yeah, yeah. Inside the, it's very trick. Actually, I guess we missed a trick because we, we do have this kind of Ballardian moment at some point in the book, yeah, you but, do. but didn't, yeah, didn't you tie do. that yeah. together, actually. Yeah, you, yeah. you could have tied it in. Yeah, yeah. it's... Um, no, he's the works. I mean, he's so... The thing about Led Berlusconi, I ended up thinking is he's almost too too much of an agent, right? I mean, he's too, there's a sort of genius to the... He's, he's in a sense too grand a historical yeah. actor for the role that you've assigned him to. <laughs> That's like, true. Yeah. You know, de facto, he's the end of whatever he's the end of. But but he's actually just um, you know he's such a player and such a such a he has such a capacious grasp of what the project could be. I think actually far Probably. more than Trump. I, I, oh I think. yeah, absolutely yeah. seized on seized on it very early. Yeah, yeah. Trump's just really, really happy to be on a reality TV show, and that's just about the, <laughs> surfing the know, wave. Yeah, just kind yeah. of like that's the the sum total of it. Um, with Berlusconi, you genuinely get the sense that he um, 
yeah, he's a much more significant cultural, more like a Henry Ford type figure in that sense. You know? mm. I wonder if that's his connection to Craxy and um, the socialists, yeah. and he's more kind of historically embedded in, in the yep. end of the First Republic in a way, whereas Trump comes in kind of, um, you know, in a very different period, I guess. Absolutely. And I don't think, yes, I think that I, I like, I like, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. Trump doesn't really have a connection. I mean, they get the analogy would be like Trump's links to the Clintons, I guess, right? In the 90s to the, the analogy to Craxy. Yeah. 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 Um, or to, um, what's his face, the, that attorney, he, um, Roy Cohn. Yeah. Attorney, he, he was the power broker in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, all the, but there's such a gap between that kind of 80s New York um, world and when Trump kind of comes in. On the president, on the kind of political scene, um, whereas I suppose maybe Berlusconi had, like you say, he had a bigger sense of himself as closing down, um, closing down the First Republic. Well, and he also, you know, whereas Trump's towers are a kind of aesthetic expression of something or other, right? I mean, Berlusconi's vision in that housing project is so much more comprehensive and original. Mm. You know, you could also say, like, you know. You could imagine Trump as a star on a on a network owned by Berlusconi. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. To, yeah. see what I mean? Like, Hope, you know, hopefully, Trump hopefully. doesn't own a network yet. Um, hopefully, there's enough yeah. life in in both of them yet that that might one day be realised. <laughs> you guys can just go bingo. <laughs> yeah, we want we want uh, we want like rights to be script script consultants on that at the very least. <laughs> Exactly, all our ducks in a row at that moment. Yeah. All, yeah. Christmas, all our Christmases, all Christmases once. came at once. Right. Yeah. I really liked your stuff about democracy as politics. Mm. It was a real throwback to me to Deluge, actually. I ended up rather perversely concluding that the absolute high point of European democratic politics was 1916 or 17. <laughs> um, yeah. But on your grounds, in other words, it's it's not because it's formally finished or everyone's enfranchised. It's just that, you know, it's it's to me still astonishing that you can have open strike movements and open parliamentary discussion of peace in the middle of a war, which at that point yeah. is consuming the mm. lives of fifteen to twenty thousand people a day. Um, you know, it's un it's unthinkable in. The later it's unthinkable in World War Two. It's completely yeah. unthinkable by the time you get to, you know, the wars of our era, um, yeah. where there's this like monolithic consensus that the mm -hmm. comparatively trivial military endeavors require like complete closure, you know, home Burgfrieden, complete closure of the home front. Whereas in the middle of World War One, you can actually have gladiatorial parliamentary combat, open open protest, um, you know, and a full, the full register, also a weird combination on the elite side. You know, these are all people with classical educations. So somebody like Clemenceau self-consciously enacts Demosthenes, and he's not messing around. That's literally who he thinks he's embodying. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and he speaks, you know, and these people have oratorical, oratorical skills, which are at that level, right? They, they come out of, you know, deep Western Civ, classically inspired conceptions and and that mixture of mass politics mass media huge class mobilization war as an ish political issue um to be decided in the midst of doing it um 
well, it's not surprising. It's the Bolshevik moment. But but you know, I actually think it's also the high point of democracy in a sense of the yeah. You know, if, uh, whereas you know most narratives run have a very different chronology from that. Anyway, sorry, I was just I was thought it was a very interesting passage. No, absolutely. Well, it's all been downhill by, since then. <laughs> yeah, are you guys inspired by Ranciere at all? Then is this that, coming out? Yes. I, I wasn't, I wasn't yeah. checking the footnotes at that point. Very that, much so. He was yeah, okay. a great kind of influence in terms of framing some of the issues and questions. Yeah. And I think it was he was part of a wider moment. I mean, yeah. when we were all at grad school, he was very much kind of discussed among those people who are into political theory, such as ourselves. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, very much so that kind of typology he developed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, good. I just I was kind of thinking this strikes me, strikes me like that. There's that weird use of the democracy. People like Lloyd George use the democracy not it's, to refer to the constitution, mm, yeah. but to the forces of progressive political change. Right. It's a kind of wonder. It's a wonderful kind of anachronism, I think. Actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it the sets democracy. us up very well, in fact, because one of the contrasts that we wanted to talk about was the um, the way in which um, I mean, the war on terror. That we're not going to talk about the war on terror, yeah. but the war on terror and coronavirus, they don't seem to be predicated on that kind of. Um, trade-off where the sacrifice of the citizenry is going to lead to kind of greater enfranchisement or greater benefits for the citizenry. There doesn't seem to be any kind of deal like that, which has been constructed as a result of these political moments. Um, so but that's something we can get into. Yeah, it's, yeah no, by all means. Yeah. Well, sh sh shall we get started? So um, we'll, we'll jump right in. Um, we're here to obviously discuss your book, Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Uh, when did you actually start uh, writing the book? When did you decide to start writing the book? Because I understand you were working on a different project in early 2020. Yeah, like, like most people, I had other plans <laughs> really? in 2020. Yeah. Um, you can say that as many times as you like, and it's still funny. Um, yeah, I, I was indeed. I mean, I still am. I'm going back to it now. I mean, I I, uh, I, I was I'm writing a book about the political economy of of, of the climate crisis, and um, but I, I shifted because um, because I didn't really feel I had any option. I, um, the what happened is that the narrative of the 2008 crisis, which was itself, of course, distilled out of the analysis produced at the time by journalists, economists, and so on, um, had been widely read by the commentariat, by journalists, economists, and so on. Um, and so when um, the financial markets started to collapse on Monday 9th of March, the repo market began to shake, which is the market where you buy and resell treasuries, US treasury debt, I just was inundated with phone calls, emails from people saying, you know, Adam, can you can you help us think through this? Can we talk about that? Can you write something about this? And for the first time in my life, because I, I found myself, as it were, really in immediate real time describing, trying to think through and analyze um, a, a major historical shock. Um, I'd begun to do that more and more since the publication of, of Crashed and my immersion in social media you know finance twitter and so on which began for me relatively recently i'm i'm you know i only really started doing that in, in about 2015 and so this was the first moment where i felt you know just compelled by the flow of events to think on my feet in real time and at some point it just became impossible to go on writing the climate book and doing this at the same time i just couldn't handle the psychological stress of it um 
Yeah, Duncan Weldon, uh, the you know the great works for the Economist now, has just published his book on British economic history. He joked with me after I published Crash that you know you're going to have to write an endless new edition, and <laughs> and there I was doing exactly that. Um, so the historical narrative really caught up with me. Um, so before digging into the book a bit, I was I was just curious on this point, um, being a historian and how you kind of put yourself in in the current moment. So you've achieved renown as a historian of Imperial and Nazi Germany, and then subsequently the US rise to global power during and after the First World War. And like you mentioned, the global history of the financial crash of 2008. So could you tell us a little bit about the intellectual challenges and difficulties as a historian in coming closer and closer to the present in terms of your analysis? Um, well, I think, you know, fundamentally what I'm interested in is is history so the historicity the experience of living in navigating in acting in thinking in time and time as as you have have talked about in in your fascinating book on the end of the end of history like history history isn't just events and history isn't just the sort of flow of clock time it's an understanding of of those processes is interconnected as collectively meaningful. Yeah. And I've become more, you know, this is the sort of Hegelian understanding of history and actuality. And I've become, yes, as a professional historian, more and more preoccupied with, as it were, the living experiment of living and understanding actuality in real time. Um, so I don't think of it as any way a sort of unhistorical activity. It's just driven to an, a kind of an acute sense of consciousness by the fact that it's immediate. And, and in this case, this this is the first time I've ever experienced this, you know, immediately impacted me personally and my family and those nearest and dearest to me. I mean, my yeah. wife's business was basically shut down. My daughter was furloughed. We know dozens of people who've become unemployed as a result of the crisis. I'd mm. never experienced a shock of that type before. And my own health is, you know, slightly precarious in certain ways. So I actually felt a degree of fear that I've not felt before yeah. in that immediacy. And so in all of these ways, you know, uh, in that and that review that Perry Anderson wrote about my work, he said like, you know, two things in or starts to describe history in media race. So in the middle of it, and this was that, <laughs> you know, like nothing yeah. I've ever lived in before. And I would, I would insist it was history. I know your guys are kind of skeptical about the idea of history restarting. I think I really think this is really the beginning of of anthropocenic history collectively experienced would be my mm. one, of, one of the climbs I would want to make. Um, well, it'd be nice to get onto that in 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 just a little yeah. bit, but um, to go through the book, uh, let's start with the title. It's an obvious place to start, but it obviously confronts the reader because you've opted for shutdown instead of lockdown. Uh, why is that? Well, because. Um, lockdown is is contentious in a way and to to, to to simply i don't there's nothing there's nothing wrong with it being contentious it's just that to simply flatly adopt it as the title as as though it was self-evident is to miss a interesting question and so i thought i would take an oblique uh approach so as to force the question of why isn't he talking about lockdown and um well, obviously, you know, in the English use of the language anyway, um, you know, lockdowns before 2020 would have been associated with collective punishments in prisons. Like, uh, that's yeah. the obvious association. If you look up the word on Amazon, you'll find loads of ghastly, you know, more or less sadistic prison novels about on that theme. And 
And so the term itself implies a kind of politics of this collective action. And what I was interested in was trying to find a term that left open the question of what the politics and power relations in that, let's, for want of a better term, like collective action were. And, and um, I don't for a second deny that there are places in the world, notably India, South Africa, uh, in which the term lockdown, in fact, seems entirely appropriate. It was it was coerced, it was sudden, it was from above, it was enforced with real violence. And friends and you know folks that I know in Paris described the situation there at times as well as being lockdown-y. Uh, speaking mm. about New York, it would be entirely inappropriate to describe the situation in New York. You know, we were at the epicenter of the crisis in March and early April, and and yet there was no police. I mean, this is you know a country perfectly capable of exercising police coercion. And by the summer, during the curfews after Black Lives Matter, in the middle of it, we had police cars driving up and down the street here, hushing people back into their apartments at 8 p.m. or 8.30 or whenever it was in midsummer. So that's what it looks like when you are being looked at, locked down. That's not what we experienced in, in March or April at all. And if you get into the economics of it, you know, the IMF has done, take it or leave it, econometric studies on the process and the, the data strongly suggests that the vast majority of the reduction in mobility was produced through voluntary action, self-protective action, yeah. um, rather I mean, than government fiat. I mean, on that, actually, I mean, it's interesting that uh, I guess you could argue that the government response, the lockdowns then did obviously then ended up locking in that initially fearful response from citizens, from consumers. And there's an interesting contrast in the book uh, that you uh, you can contrast this demobilization in the West with China's mass mobilization. So one of the one interesting factor I was, I was unaware of, you know, that uh, China enlisted well over a hundred thousand grid workers per province to monitor, test people, and so on, yeah. um, build hospitals, and so yeah. on. And that there's a real contrast there between China's mobilization and uh, and and the West's demobilization. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we need a better way of thinking about China than some sort of crude authoritarianism or some sort of top-down mm. dictatorship. And, and um, you know, there's a whole variety of other characterizations out there. And I'm not really, you know, um, I, don't, I don't have the expertise to, to arbitrate between them. But the very least, what we need is an idea of the capacity for various types of mobilization, not comprehensive of the entire population, but of a strategic minority that rallies around the regime in key moments like this and self-activates in ways which the which which Beijing and Xi Jinping then in fact have to begin unraveling by the middle of February because this impulse to lockdown has become so powerful. And yes, they have been experimenting over the last 10 years with I think two different types. I think they're subtly different from each other. One is the implantation of the Communist Party in the fabric of the new urban prosperous China, so in private housing estates, in co-op boards, as we know, in businesses as well. And then on the other hand, there's also these rather interesting experiments in local government administration, which are, I think, more about the delivery of services um, in these rapidly expanding cities. And both of those were activated very powerfully in, in from the last week of January. Um, and then there is, as it were, the kind of, you know, China's obviously complex, uneven development. So there's also the sort of localism of Chinese rural life, the villages that shouldn't be shut down and just wouldn't let anyone pass who didn't have the right accent. Um, and quite a lot of, um, you know, regional and ethnic um, hostility and xenophobia, um, which was very, very marked towards people from, from Hubei and Wuhan who have quite strong accents. 
and found themselves on the wrong end of of some pretty grievous discrimination and you can yeah. see this through the efforts of the regime to counter steer you know when when beijing feel it's necessary to issue instructions that you know that the that the ad hoc local decision to shut down a major interstate highway is not fully sanctioned by the party. You know something's going on. That, <laughs> yeah. That um, you know that uh, this is a typical historian's method. That the prohibition suggests to you that um, there's there's an issue there somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing um, which is also interesting in terms of you setting out what the scope of your book is is that you say that your intention is to explain the shutdown not as a result of overprotection or as a policy of repression, but as a result of structural tensions. Um, so as we kind of move towards the meat of the book, could you explain what you meant by this? Well, I, what I mean is that is that we ended up doing something staggering. I mean, utterly staggering. And I don't really think we have a very good explanation for why. And I'm not convinced by the simple surveillance capitalism saw it all coming. Well, of course, they were going to do that. It's great for Amazon, isn't it? Kind of logic. And I'm not very convinced by the sort of dictatorial state seizing its chance type logic either. It doesn't seem to me a very reasonable characterization of what was happening. Mm. I also am not terribly convinced by sort of humanitarian, oh, morality triumphed over the economy type right. logics, though something clearly did triumph over the economy. I'm not sure it's morality in any simple sense. So what I wanted to do was describe in that difficult second chapter, as it were, the mechanisms that were in place that would produce, I read the decision to lock down as a sense, as a sort of desperate flight forward to resolve a set of issues that can't in any simple sense be resolved. So it's simultaneously possible in early March to have, you know, that the Prime Minister of Britain openly discussing the you know the fam famous mayor in on you know in the beach resort in jaws who tries to keep the businesses open <laughs> yeah and more or less openly discussing herd immunity on the one hand as a totally rational policy and at some level it's difficult to deny there's a certain rationality to it kind of crude rationality to it and on the other hand to have mayor you know governor cuomo going on television and saying with equal conviction that you know no life is worth sacrificing for wall street and I think the shutdown logic comes out of the sort of incredibly messy um, slalom between these positions that liberal regimes have to navigate in that period. And the answer is they don't really have a good way of arbitrating that. I mean, the simple fact that, you know, the, the economistic solution would be to say, well, let's do a cost benefit analysis of what we're about to do. And as soon as you do that, people will accuse you of being some sort of mass murdering psycho. Yeah. Um, and you and 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 Trump. I do think increasingly does begin to sound, I mean, he may have, for many people, of course, and I, I very much enjoy your, what, what do you call it, neoliberalism, neoliberal breakdown syndrome or whatever. <laughs> yeah, the, neoliberal you know, the breakdown sort of, syndrome. Yeah, the, 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 the knee-jerk liberal sort of antipathy for Trump, I don't, I don't share. But nevertheless, I do think he begins to seem increasingly deranged as we're saying things like, you know, we've got to restart, we've got to sacrifice lives as necessary to restart the economy. Mm. Though he never actually quite says that. Some of his outriders do. And then as a historian of World War II, you think, well, why is that crazy? That's the sort of thing you say all the time in World War II. Right? The idea that people would go to work and risk their lives to sustain war production is just obvious. Right? It's not even worth debating in a total war society. So. I tried to describe the lockdown as resulting, in a sense, from a kind of black hole of governance. I quite like your, I think this is the sort of thing you'd expect to see where there's no politics there. This is, these are not societies well suited 
to making and well habituated even to making the kind of claims necessary to anchor very difficult decisions. Yeah, like so the legitimacy to to care to see them through even even wanting to even with a uh, will no, from the top. Yeah, so not being able to appeal to kind of conventional rhetorics of heroism. Like, why can't you say old people ought to take it on the chin for the economy? Like, you know, <laughs> you can't say that. It'd be crazy. Republicans would say that, and then there, everyone agrees they're crazy. Um, so, so that's as it were what I'm trying to describe is as it were a, a, a the lockdowns emerging not as carefully calculated um, cost benefit policy, but as the last resort having ended at a place where F, where we really didn't have and what's really interesting of course is that epidemiologists and virologists have told us forever that you know well they've told us for 50 years it's a specific learning of modernity that this could happen because after all in the yeah. 70s we thought we'd killed smallpox it was all over and yet um, we still weren't prepared for it yeah no i mean that's 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 evident um obviously the uh the west's failings um, make someone else look good um and that's china and you write that china china's 2020 wasn't a chernobyl moment uh, as some had expected there was no huge crisis of legitimacy for the people's republic uh, as there had been for the ussr in 1986 um and i mean that's i think quite clear looking back um but do you think conversely that 2020 was china's sputnik moment or is that too grand maybe no, it's more div it's more divisive and difficult than that. I mean, I think the regime would like it to be a Sputnik moment, but I mean, first thing to say is that if we hadn't run, you know, if if we hadn't screwed up as badly as we ended up screwing up, this would have gone down as an absolute disaster for Xi Jinping's regime, right? Mm. Because this is so much worse than two thousand and three, which itself has gone down in the annals of the Chinese Communist Party as a disaster. It's the worst economic shock that China has suffered since the beginning of the reform period, even though they bounced back faster than everyone else. So if that's if if the rest of the world had managed to contain in February, this would have been a profound disaster for the for the Chinese regime. We hand them the victory. Um, internally, I think it does feel probably like a Sputnik moment. But the problem, of course, is that this is also the moment in which the antagonism towards China moves from being sort of awed, impressed, jealous envious kind of monitoring of their GDP growth on, you know, the purchasing power parity adjusted GDP metrics that we're all addicted to, to one of antagonism. So, yeah. you know, it, it's uh, whereas Sputnik remained very impressed and everyone wanted one too. There was an implicit sense of threat, but it wasn't manifest. Well, and I guess there wasn't the massive technological breakthrough here. I mean, you do know that China was successful with vaccines and so on to, to a certain degree, but I guess it's not the that. basic level. Yeah. yeah. No, it isn't. And it's a, it's a triumph. It's a triumph in, of, of, any, if it, of anything of a social system rather than a technological prowess. Yeah, I mean that, that that comes through so strongly throughout the book that the, as you're going through describing the the contradictions and the prevarications of various Western nations, the struggles of emerging markets, and then China just comes in and blows everyone out of the water, kind of repeatedly. There's this kind of scene that plays out a, a, across the book, and I mean to turn, I guess, back to the West. Um, you write that um, I mean, with regard to these enormous uh, crisis response from leading governments. Uh, that while it overturned the nostrums of neoliberalism, notably with regard to the scale of government interventions, it was framed by neoliberalism's legacies in the form of hyperglobalization, 
fragile and attenuated welfare states, profound social and economic inequality, and the overweening size and influence of private finance. Uh, could you maybe uh, respond to that and explain how all this played out in, in, a, in a, what you call a very 21st century fiscal monetary synthesis? Yeah, so what I'm what I'm after here, and it's a not so coded message to my friends on the sort of Green New Deal MMT left in the US and in Britain, is let's by all means register and indeed in some sense celebrate the crisis of the nostrums, in other words, the ideas, the the, the ideology of neoliberalism. But let's not mistake that for a new era or the opening of any great necessarily opportunities for transformative politics on that basis alone anyway. Um, because what is done in the space vacated by the collapse of you know, neoliberal ideology is dramatic. But the condition of possibility for it is precisely as you analyze in your book, the suppression, destruction of the live forces of a contested democracy, which is what forced the creation of independent central banking with a conservative program in the 1980s. I, I found this incredible quote by Rudiger Dornbusch, one of the truly most influential economists of MIT in the 1980s and 1990s. He literally says, you know, the aim of our project is to end democratic money because all democratic money is bad. Now, that was a great quote. It's, an, it's just staggering. And I don't know why it's only just surfaced because it's so, you know, in light of the conversations that have been going on for 20 years now, really, about the end of politics and so on, it's just there in crystalline form and, and explicitly making explicit the anti-democratic, specifically democratic um, problem that independent central banks of the 1980s, 1990s variety were designed to supersede. Now, the point is that if those same central bankers with the same intellectual DNA, basically, and certainly the same class DNA, are now embarked on the sort of policies that once they would have anathematized, what are the conditions for that? And the conditions, unfortunately, are that they won. They so decisively cleared the battlefield of their enemies that they now feel essentially unconstrained in their actions. And the function of those actions, sure, and we should recognize it, and this is a difference I have to somebody like Robert Brenner, is not simply expanded plunder. Right? That The hegemonic operation in 2020, 2021 is more complex than that. But it certainly has the effect of reinforcing existing and absolutely massive inequalities and perpetuating a system which is unstable, fragile, and we've now seen on multiple occasions capable of really quite massive breakdown. So that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to get at. In a sense, it is it's quite it's, it's again, there's an analogy to your argument about, you know, the end of history not meaning the beginning of new of the end of the end of history not meaning the beginning of history again. In the sense I'm saying the end of neoliberalism doesn't mean somehow the rebirth of social democracy. Yeah, absolutely. It just leaves yeah. us in this broken ground. Yeah. Which in which power, naked power, in the zones that I look at rather than zones of political discourse and political culture, in these zones of naked power that I look at, you know, is in a sense even more unconstrained than before, which is where mm. somebody like Robert Brenner gets off calling this a neo-feudalism and, you know, um, which I also don't think quite gets it because that to me is too retro. I, I think we need to recognize yeah. the new nature of this, of this. But if you look at, say, EU restrictions on subsidies to corporates, normally those are the kind of sort of chastity belt, right, around European capitalism. So far and no further. Like you can, you can, you know, cosset your businesses, but not more than this. All of that went. 
So yep. it was just an uninhibited carnival of subsidies to corporate interest. And we dress this up to make ourselves better, feel better because we're saying we're protecting jobs, which you are up to a certain point, but you're also protecting shareholders. And, you know, we talk about small and medium-sized business, which makes us feel better, but this is just another word for the petty bourgeoisie, right? Or indeed, in fact, lower levels of the bourgeoisie. Yeah. And the top 1% of the income distribution, or no, less than that, like fractions of 1% of the top half of the wealth distribution. And and just, just being gigantic subsidy to that entire group um, as never before. So... So when the rules break, you know, when when neoliberalism loses its ideological guilty conscience, we should not necessarily, you know, rejoice because it's yeah, right. not obvious yeah. what the next move then yeah. is, right? And it could be Bolsonaro, it could be God knows what, right? Yeah. So I mean, this is something you've, this segues into the next question, I suppose. And it's something you've struck, you kind of build into the narrative of the book from the start is the absence of an organized left and a working class mm. as actually an explanatory factor um, in this enormously uneven response. Um, and you, I mean, you talk about the US and the CARES Act, and you've already mentioned this huge upwards transfer of wealth. Um, so, I mean, how. How important is the absence of a left in driving all of these responses, do you think? Well, at the level of class dynamics, we've already just spoken about it. And, and, and um, it, you know, it frames the possibility for the actions that are taken. Um, and even I would say, you know, the rescue plan that the Biden administration pushes through, it's absolutely classic 1990s, 2000s, well-targeted social policy from above backed up by central bank action far better than nothing don't get me wrong like and 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 far better than cares which really was pork barrel politics for everyone mm. um but that's the sort of politics that it is the thing that preoccupied me most was in a sense the cognitive um politics of this because this is a crisis intellectually for neoliberalism it's a <laughs> triumph for the basic diagnosis of the green deal new uh green new deal um, absolute triumph because it, because... because it mapped the interconnection between the three things and said we need to understand the relationship between the fragility and unstable dynamics of capitalism, the inequality and social inequality this produces, and irreducibly the new threats that come from the environmental yeah. crisis that we're in. Yeah. We all mistook what the immediate threat was going to be. We were all on climate and none of us were on emerging infectious diseases. But nevertheless, that diagnosis was fundamentally, fundamentally correct. And one of the things that happens is, in a sense, is that almost because of its political defeat in the form of Corbyn and Sanders, it opens it up for appropriation by the centrists. So this is, yeah. again, a point yeah. where I would differ with somebody like Brenner. But what I see is something more, in a sense, not worrying, but like more dynamic in that the centrists can break up and metabolize key elements of what was essentially a correct and critical diagnosis and subsume them. Daniel Agarbo has this great phrase, you know, revolution without revolutionaries. I, I quote the, you know, uh, Gattopardo, you know, for everything to stay the yeah. same, everything has to change. That, this is the kind of moment that this is, right? This is LaSalle yeah. Bismarck, where the conservative figures can see the essential veracity and penetrating quality of a certain critique can also exploit its de facto on the ground political weakness to absorb elements of that into 
an intellectual vacuum created by the breakdown of neoliberalism, right? So you can you can you can suck this stuff up uh, and assimilate it. Yeah. Mm. Um, and 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 the and I'm convinced the condition of possibility of that is the defeat of the left, right? So I do have this little counterfactual, like what if Bernie Sanders had been nominated? But I think, yeah. well, frankly, I think it's very difficult to call what would have happened because I think it would have been so labile. The structures of the American Constitution, I do not think, would have survived. Well, the um, you know the suggestion of the text is that they might not have survived intact. No, that that's interesting, and I mean, I want to put a pin in this now, but we do want to come back to this question of uh, Green New Deal and class politics uh, a little bit later on. Um, mm-hmm. But for now, maybe you want to turn to focus on another area of the world. Um, I wanted to focus on the shutdown of the developing world. So, yeah. I mean, you you discuss Latin America quite a bit, Africa as well, but I mean, to to focus on Latin America, its case was particularly. Grave. I mean, something that I experienced here. Um, you know that it managed financial stabilization as, and as this is as an example of the Wall Street consensus or the new toolbox. Yeah. But at the same time, obviously, it suffered huge COVID fatalities, especially in Ecuador and Peru. But you know, as as well in Brazil, and of course, very unequally born. Um, you know, the the human costs. Um, but I guess the question what I'm getting to is that uh, I mean, with hugely informal economies, the human and economic costs of lockdown were obviously devastating. And you also actually discuss India as an example, where Modi's lockdown resulted in scenes that hadn't been seen since partition and and the huge Mm. population movements that that involved. Mm. So, I mean, how do you understand this paradox? How do you maybe try to resolve this paradox that the countries that seemingly needed strong measures to combat the pandemic the most were the ones that could least afford them, not just, uh, you know, financially, but uh, but perhaps in, in, in human terms? Well, I mean, in general terms, I mean, I think your, your diagnosis is absolutely right. I mean, in general terms, I think the we think this is the the alarming scenario that faces us in the age of the Anthropocene, right? That the countries most affected by global warming as well are those least well able to cope with it, um, with the least resources for adaptation, let alone mitigation. I mean, they don't, on the whole, generally contribute per capita anyway, a significant amount to the genesis of the problem, but they are in harm's way as it develops. So it's not, you know, um, it's not it's not for nothing that Kim Stanley Robinson's, you know, you know, vista of climate disaster in the future centers on a giant disaster in India as a result of a, a, a huge heat wave there. That is one of the the scenarios that I think we anticipate unfolding over the next couple of decades. So I think that is the nature of the beast. And, you know, what was surprising in a sense about 2020 is that the epidemic ran out of control so severely in the three great hubs of the global economy. And so China, Europe, and the United States, the fact that it did run out of control in emerging and low income uh, um, countries is less surprising, but it is, I mean, appalling in its consequences. I mean, that, that was always expected. You mentioned at one point yeah. in the book about of how, I think in that February period of, of wasting time when Western countries weren't taking action, that yeah. the EU was preoccupied, one with new refugee influxes, and yeah. we're still thinking yeah. about th- worry, pandemic worries as just being something about the global South, which doesn't really concern yeah. us. It's at most a humanitarian concern. Um, and I think that's quite quite clear but i mean i guess what what i'm getting at in my in, in the question that i asked was whether the fact that the need for perhaps a lockdown to stop the spread was just impossible in countries like 
Ecuador, for example, where informal economies meant that people would had to go to work. So the lockdown was was impossible. Whereas in countries with better healthcare systems, a lockdown was less necessary. So I mean, isn't there a sort of paradox there? Well, no healthcare system could. I mean, I I I I'm, I take the conventional view that the lockdowns were absolutely essential, even in the rich countries, because their healthcare systems could not have coped without the social distancing measures. Um, I actually think in the limit, once then an epidemic like this runs out of control, you know, no one's healthcare system, it doesn't matter how large it is. I don't in the book actually emphasize strongly. I don't, I don't neglect it, but I don't emphasize strongly the way in which neoliberalism stripped the hospital systems down. Because in the end, once you get once you have the exponential growth system going on, it really doesn't matter how large your hospital system is dimensioned, it will be overwhelmed. Um, the striking thing about the emerging market economies is that they participated in the general push to lockdown in March and April, regardless of any local cost benefit analysis. Right. So mm. um, this is the really striking thing about India. Um, it's not at all evident in retrospect that it was the right. I mean, it's clear in retrospect it was the wrong way to do whatever they were doing. Um, it's not even obvious in retrospect that it was the right thing to do in the first place at the moment they did it, right? Because at the yeah. moment they implemented it, there really just wasn't much infection in India. So the really striking thing about it is, to my mind, the logic of incorporation that really says no one's life is too cheap, right? Absolutely every country in the world, bar a handful of small exceptions, participates in the lockdown process in March because it just becomes a kind of mandatory action that all governments must take in the face of this global threat. To not take it really labels you as eccentric, weird, callous, disregarding of the interests of your population. It, it contributed crucially to the delegitimation of the Belarusian regime and the launch of the mass wave of protests which continue there all the way to the present day, is that is that the regime just appeared oblivious to the to the risks. So I don't find it difficult to understand that the emerging markets attempted to do these lockdowns, nor, however, is it difficult to understand that it was very difficult to maintain them for long enough for them to be as effective as one might have wished given the, as you say, the huge, huge informal sector. I mean, Latin America's total informal workforce is roughly on the same size of that as India. Mm, um, yeah. It's absolutely huge, in other words, once you look across national boundaries and treat treat the continent as a, as a single block or South America as a single block. So, yeah, yeah no, it's very difficult to maintain. Um, I, I, you know, I think what's interesting is that in some ways this discussion um, is being forgotten and maybe won't be fully had out about what could have been done differently because the focus changed to vaccines and that kind of remains the focus. Yes. So on the question of, of the vaccines, I mean, you note in the book that most governments around the world were engaged in unprecedented emergency spending that dwarfed the scale of the entire vaccine program. Uh, and at a separate moment, you also note the disproportion between the scale of the crisis and the scale of the means used to resolve it. So tens of trillions in damage tens of billions on the vaccine, and even less on their efficient deployment and fair distribution. Um, this is obviously left currently, as we're recording, you know, billions unvaccinated in the developing world. How do you account for that disproportion? The costs of the lockdowns and then not, not spending that much on actually vaccine distribution? It, it is, I think, actually a really deep puzzle. I don't, I, I, I mean, I, I remark it, I highlight it, I stress it. For emphasis and because you know that is one of the critical points i want to make in the book and i I'd, I'd like that point to be heard but to explain it is actually really quite difficult 
um, because the cost-benefit ratio that the IMF has calculated is 180 to 1. I mean, mm. it's staggering. It literally, yeah. it contradicts any rational choice or even just sort of basic, I mean, forget rational choice, any kind of notion of self-interested action would suggest that any two, you know, certainly any five of the richer members of the G20 could get together and easily justify the 50 billion that would be necessary to restart, you know, to really genuinely roll out a fully comprehensive vaccination program yeah. and reap these spectacular benefits. It's it's very difficult to understand how that could happen other than, you know, and it's not, it's what what, what would be the corporate interest? It, it, the, the patent argument, which has been used by the left on this issue doesn't work. That isn't the constraint. The constraint is no. productive capacity and, and rolling out know-how um, in an embodied form and having envisioned from the start the vaccine programs at the necessary scale. So only the AstraZeneca, the ill-fated AstraZeneca vaccine, was from the very beginning conceived of as something that was going to be outsourced to the Serum Institute and produced at the relevant scale, right? The, the uh, mRNA ones were always much more boutique, smaller, smaller projects. And so, I mean, you end up saying something quite banal. And I think in the end, one has to say it, which is that there is a disconnect. And I do say this in the book, a disconnect between the ability of the ruling elite, ruling elites to just use that kind of crude term, to comprehend the scale of action that is necessary to manage the globalized world that they have made, right? So this yeah. is, as it were, yeah. uh, uh, a fundamental, a different sort of disconnect. I mean, you describe very brilliantly in your book the sort of blindness of that elite to what democracy actually means, um, and you know where their enemies might come from and why they hate us and all of these sorts of silly questions that they ask. But this is of a rather different order. This is literally ten trillion dollars in checks lying around on the street that no one has the fantasy, the imagination, to pick up. Yeah, and it, it's it's it's. It is quite staggering, especially alongside the other things that have been done. So, I mean, so then you end up saying, maybe we should reverse this. What is it that enables the truly spectacular things to be done? And the answer, I think, there is that is in the end a more productive line of thought, which is to say, what enables the truly spectacular things to be done is the well-trodden path of fiscal and monetary policy coordination and the existing globalized network of finance and the existing and powerfully interconnected network of central bank expertise. And within that circuit, as it were, you can go from billions to tens of billions to hundreds of billions to trillions without anyone really batting an eyelid. But yeah. it's a well-greased track that we travel on in doing that. And it's exclusive, privileged, reproduces inequality. We do not have that kind of network for global public health, despite the efforts of billionaire philanthropists to build it. It's all remained at a scale that's too small. But in terms of like normative conclusions, if we are to have a chance of m managing any of these crises going forward, you know, the sort of politics I'm interested in, which is very much inside this machine of governance, has got to be about expanding those kind of networks. What are the bargains necessary to interest the really big pharma companies in building networks that will enable us to do those kind of vaccine programs at scale in a matter of three or four months rather than, you know, two or three years. So moving to those financial institutions you've mentioned, you've um, argued in the book and elsewhere that central banks have been victims of their own success in keeping inflation down. What does that mean? 
Well, um, the great struggle of the 70s and 80s was inflation. Um, and the world that we're in now, the great struggle of central bank policy is that we're in a world of what's called lowflation and stagflation. Yeah. And there are a variety of different explanations for this, um, including, you know, most significantly the bolting on of several hundred million manual workers in Asia onto the global supply chain system network, which totally shifted the balance of force between capital and labor, um, aging populations, which changed the dynamics of saving and consumption. Yeah. Um, better central bank policy, which the central bankers pat themselves on the back for, and in the age of the great moderation, used to claim credit for that. You know, they've got much better at their job. Yeah. And in the background, of course, lurks the theme that we were discussing earlier on, which is that the central thrust of central bank politics in the eighties, anyway, was to break what they understood to be a dangerous cycle between wages and prices, which in its guts was driven by the ability of organized labor to push back against rising price levels and demand wage indexation or higher wages yeah. classically in somewhere like Italy, but in much of Latin America as well. And they snapped that link by, by, you know, either direct class struggle means in the sense of the Thatcher government breaking the national union of miners and mine workers in, in Britain, uh, which was an ongoing 15 year struggle between the Tory party and the and that part of the British working class. Um, but more generally through the kind of cosh of um, a huge interest rate shock in, engineered by Paul Volcker in the Federal Reserve from 1979. Yeah. Again, with quite explicit, I mean, Volcker, Volcker is as unapologetic in, in arguing that that inflation needs to be broken both by macroeconomic means and by breaking the the power of organised labour on the other side. So, how, so how are they yeah. victim? How are they victims of well, that regime then? Well, you become a victim because then all of a sudden it turns out that your macroeconomic management problem um, was of one type when you were trying to avoid inflation, and becomes a, 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 another sort of problem when you've got deflation. Because yeah. for highly leveraged, in other words, indebted economies deflation is much more terrifying than inflation because yeah. you know if you've just imagine if you i know if, if you are lucky enough to own a house and imagine if the value of the house fell in half and you, your mortgage wouldn't adjust um yeah. and so that avoiding that kind of cycle of debt deflation is is really the central preoccupation of macroeconomic policy back to the great depression um and and that's what they now struggle with and it's very difficult for them to in fact engender energetic increases in prices. So you've mentioned the disproportion, I suppose, or this, I suppose, the asymmetry between these tremendously sophisticated global financial networks and central banks and so on, and the absence of that in the public health um, equivalent. Mm -hmm. So I wondered maybe if you have any thoughts about what the long-term implications are of these um, central banks and these kind of technocratic institutions par excellence being so powerful. What does the world, what does the future of the world look like with these um, institutions having been strengthened by the pandemic? Well, it's, it's, it, I mean, it depends what, I mean, it's a difficult question to answer just straight out, to be honest. Um, it's perspective, it's futuristic. Um, what we have seen at times in Europe, depending on the sort of policy pursued, but an austerity policy pursued in the name of that kind of technocracy easily collects enemies against itself. Um, and, yeah. and I think one of the lessons learned um, from that experience after 2010, on the part, say, of the people who run the German finance ministry under Olaf Scholz, is that it's better to avoid that. 
Yeah. Um, because managing Italy's politics under the cosh of austerity is terrifyingly dangerous for the Eurozone. And on the other hand, if you then do what's necessary, in other words, the ECB activates and buys bonds, and now Italy and Greece can borrow at negative interest rates over the medium term time horizon. If you do it loudly, you'll, you face a, a right wing populist mobilization. The AFD in Germany yeah. is, after all, originally an anti euro party, an anti Draghi party. Um, which is also a problem, and and instance, in conservative institutions of of state like the German Supreme Court will take cases by people like the yeah. AfD, which will make it quite difficult for you to carry on this sort of smooth under the counter technocratic management of that crisis. So avoiding those two equally unattractive scenarios has become how elites in Europe, at least, are, are managing this situation. And I take them to be a particularly, you know, it's a real Petri dish of yeah. this kind of politics. It doesn't, but this goes to one of your themes, right? I mean, you could say, oh, my Lord. And when that, when you spell this out to German journalists, they say, but, but you know, how are we ever going to stabilize this? Yeah. And to which my response is, folks, you know, <laughs> wake up, smell the coffee. Yeah. Um, that's one of those fantasies that you describe so nicely in your book when politics ends through the achievement of all of its goals, right? Yes. This isn't that kind of a problem. This is yes. the sort of problem which is with you forever. Yeah. So if we can manage it for the foreseeable future using this kind of delicate balancing act, we'll take that, thank you very much. Because the alternatives of trying to create an order through some sort of write down of all of the debts or Italy leaving the Eurozone are certainly in my judgment, infinitely worse. Yeah. So, so we, you know, we, we have to, uh, there's all sorts of good German words. For, I mean, we, we're driving with, you know, very slow visibility, but we're just picking our way, as it were, through the fog here. So we've got another kind of very, a very basic and prospective question, I suppose, as a follow on. So, and part of the wider picture into which the book slots, I suppose, you've got growing geopolitical rivalry, uh, competition for green energy raw materials, um, all these post-pandemic efforts to reshore various critical production and supply chains and so on. So does this mean globalization is over? Uh, um, no, I mean, I think the short answer to that is no. I think the globalization end is over discourse is, is unhelpful. Yeah. Uh, at, measured in certain terms, like trade, um, it at least for a while looked at though it has plateaued in terms of the share of trade in GDP, or to put that better, the value of trade benchmarked against GDP has been yeah. broadly speaking static since 2010, which means that exports aren't growing any faster than GDP. So the trade share of the economy is not expanding. It's static, however, and it's at the level it was, you know, at peak globalization. Yeah. So that's something. Many people, I mean, the smart people who think about this say basically what's happening is that there's a reconfiguration of relationships within that system, you know, more and more interaction of a remote variety, the sort of conversation that us folks are having right now on this Zoom call is a form of globalization, right? I mean, yeah. you're in Britain, Alex is in Brazil, I'm in the United States, this is yeah. as about a global an event as you could possibly ask for. Yeah. And um um, but of course, it doesn't involve any of us traveling around and won't show up necessarily in trade as a share of GDP. And, and then I think we also have to think of globalizer, uh, of conflict and geopolitical conflict as not necessarily a counterpost to globalization, right? But as a product of it, a modulation of it, another way of articulating it, 
um, new alliances, new intensities of interaction will be shaped through conflict. I once wrote a rather venturesome article with a, a great friend and colleague of mine, Ted Furtick, in which we insisted that well, even World War One was not the end of globalization, but in fact a modulation and a reformatting of it. Yeah. If you think about the intensity of interactions between the allies in a war, they massively intensify, right? So even if you look at something like Afghanistan right now, a substantial slice of the Afghani population is being globalized as we speak by air from airplanes, you know, flying yeah. around the world. So, so I think um, I would think of it in those terms. No, I mean, I, 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 I've always liked, and this is goes back a long way now for me intellectually, goes back to um, Charlie Bright and Michael Geyer's phrase, which is the global condition. In other words, we live in a global condition, a condition of globality. Um, globalizations and various phases of that will come and go will take different forms but the condition of interconnectedness yeah um yeah. it's just not it's not reversible it's not something you can exit yeah. so i mean adam just to pick up on something you said just uh two minutes ago but i you, i mean you seem to suggest that more dislocation would be needed to drive some sort of political resolution uh, to this internal crisis that, you know, this is only the beginning, 2020 is only the beginning, really. Um, might not something like, for example, Italy leaving the Eurozone, even crashing out of the Eurozone, be exactly that, that it might po provide a possibility for the future, both for Italy, most obviously, but also perhaps to provide that dislocation necessary to drive some uh, new political imagination. Well, I mean, I know people are tempted this by, by this idea that, you know, um, there's a bunch of people in Syriza in Greece in 2015 who were tempted by this idea. Um, the reason why it wasn't actualized is that looked at closely, the real consequences of doing something like that in terms of people's welfare um, are just so dramatic that it's very difficult for somebody with a deep sense of historic responsibility to choose something like that. So I think, um, and I know people on the left on, on, are, are deeply frustrated with that and you know, will denounce somebody like Cyprus forever as a result of his decision to opt that way. But you won't, you know, you, you won't be surprised to hear that I actually have a great deal of sympathy for that choice on his part. Um, the opposite proposition at least within the eurozone has not been tested um, and so it's quite easy to uphold it as a hypothetical alternative when we've not actually seen what its consequences are and on the other hand we have seen the pain and the frustration that staying within the eurozone causes so there's a bias in the the evident you know the arguments that are available to folks it seems to me far more likely that somewhere so a country like italy might accidentally um, crash out of the eurozone than that anyone in their right mind would deliberately take it out because the redenomination of the balance sheets, everyone's debts, everyone's uh, assets in a society as complex and as large as Italy is, is frankly hair-raising. And again, I know enough about the history of revolution and counter-revolution and social democracy to know that exactly this kind of argument was made in the Weimar Republic against you know, Luxembourg and um, the Bolshevik left in Germany, that Germany was too sophisticated a country and it was too complex. And there's in fact, I think, even rather a brilliant passage by either Lenin or Trotsky on the bourgeois ideology of complexity and how it's always invoked. I think it was one of the Bernsteins who invoked complexity as an argument against revolution in Germany. Maybe it was Rosenberg. Um, 
So, uh, you know, there's a lineage here and this argument yeah. has been going on and, and we should recognize the positions that we're occupying in it. And that is the position that that I would take, which is that this is this is potentially utterly catastrophic, by which I mean destroying of millions of jobs, laying waste to an entire social system, condemning people to decades of even worse outcomes than they currently face. This argument in no way relies on excusing or making any apology for the way the Eurozone works de facto. Um, and what it suggests as the most likely outcome is really quite miserable. In other words, that underperforming, to use the euphemism, parts of the Eurozone remain locked within it because the choice of leaving it is even worse. And that is a recipe for dissatisfaction, which is why, as far as I can see, the only easy, you know, the only way of coping with this is to hive off the risks onto the bank balance sheet of the central bank in ways which don't antagonize the Northern European conservatives. So this is in no way a Pollyannish affirmation of the realities of the, of the Eurozone. I've spent enough time in Italy recently to know how miserable um, um, the outlook can be, especially for younger people there. Um, but it is, it is, I am impressed by the risks involved in, the, in that strategy. And as I say, Therefore, it seems most likely to come about as a result of a sort of accident. I don't think anyone in Italy will be foolish enough to kind of conduct the kind of referendum that Cameron called in the UK. Um, and and were it to happen, I think it's quite possible that the radical circumstances that would result might indeed open up the possibilities for politics and agency, but they would be bought, as you know, from my view, at an extraordinarily high price. Hi, listener. The final part of our interview with Adam Tews can be found over on Patreon at patreon.com slash bungacast, where we'll continue discussing whether an off-ramp to the EU should be taken, as well as the lack of a revolutionary subject today, money printer go brrr, and the Federal Reserve's emerging role as a global central bank, plus climate change and class politics. Coming up on Bungacast over the next month, We've got a big five-part series on generations, examining generational conflict from the 19th century to the 21st. We ask what's behind the resurgence in generational consciousness today, from the OK Boomer memes to generation rent, and ask what the impact of the pandemic will be on Gen Z. Also, we'll be discussing the moral panic over incels, plenty on Germany's upcoming election, and our monthly reading club will discuss the roots of intersectionality in 1930s Stalinism and 1970s Maoism. All that and more. We'd love for you to join us. It's at patreon.com slash bungacast. That's it from us for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.